Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the smoothest class of Amarula for your mind. Two crickets and a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined as ever with the tall, bearded, and wise uh, other half of your hosts. <laughs> and you threw me off with wise, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, on most things, except the things where you disagree with me, and then we are not so wise. But otherwise, you're completely super wise. <laughs> ah, wonderful. <laughs> this is Gabriel Krauser. Uh, still figuring out how to say his name and enjoying this wonderful day. Um, I saw some interesting spellings of your name on Twitter because you've been in the news recently. And if we have time, we will get to that later in the show today. Oh, wait, can't I just start out? Let me just start out, Nick. Yeah, you need yeah, to start out with start a hello, out. how are you? I'm going to hello, how is myself? Because I do feel... <laughs> Although this will probably never see the light of day. I do feel like I've had a wonderful accomplishment today. I was finally kicked off. I was finally kicked out of studio. This, oh, yes. I, Sorry. I, I, I should have asked you about this. I, I want to hear the story. I haven't heard this story yet. I just know that it happened. So, Gabriel, what happened? Tell me from the beginning. I went to Power FM to say hello. And the, I mean, there's a very long version of it with the Human Rights Commission and what we had to say there and why that got us in a little bit of trouble. And then why I was delighted that we got a call from Power FM, given the previous sort of uh, debates that we've had. Anyway, I was very chuffed and I went into studio. And the nice thing about going into studio is it really is much easier to remain human. Um, and right, we had you're this looking at other people. You're in the same room. You're hanging out. It's very nice. It didn't didn't altogether end well, but it was, I think, in a way, always very good-natured. Sort of a dance. And the major moves were me saying, we track about 80 million advertisements in South Africa since 2013. Sorry. The South African Human Rights Commission tracks about five potentially seriously racist adverts um, that took place in that period. So five out of 80 million, that's pretty good, actually. That really is good as a ratio. Right. Five what in 80 million. Percentage? Dude, a lot of it's zeros less, in that percentage. It's, it is much like, it's much less than your odds of dying after getting vaccinated from the corona or whatever, you know, like things are like, it's very good to bring your odds from one in a hundred to one in 80 million, right? And in South Africa, let me tell you, the odds of encountering a serious racist 30 years ago was not one in a hundred. Right. It was, uh, it was much right. worse. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, so it was really good news. Not that irritates common. everyone. No, no, not too common, but it irritates so many people to hear that, man. And it is so weird. I have been like stewing in this irritate. I'm, I really am just coming to say good news. And people are legitimately so irritated to see me and hear me and just even know that I still exist. Like it's quite disconcerting. But it, it, from a human analysis perspective, I think it's very interesting. Anyway, we're chugging along. Um, Fabulously, Gail, whose surname I won't pronounce now properly because I can't remember it, 
who's the head of the Advertising Regulatory Board, who said about us on 702 a while back, I don't know what the difference is between saying racism is not the problem and saying racism is not a problem, <laughs> which I which I was keeping in my back pocket in case she got too snarky about me. But I didn't right. have to say it because she was half nice and half nasty. And that's enough that then we just focus on the content of the day. The nice thing that she said is that we're right. She said 0.4% or 0.04%, I can't remember, of complaints to the Advertising Regulatory Complaints Board are about racism. So it's definitely so at least 99% or about so we're looking at a, Right. <laughs> so we're looking at a Venn diagram, right, of all the uh, uh, adverts. And then you're looking at a much, much smaller one about the ones that get complained about. And then of that smaller amount, 0.4%, are yes. even complained about as racist, not found racist. Okay. <laughs> that kind of seems to Nick. definitively prove your, our point, right? No, 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 Nicholas. Slow down. There's still a very huge important data point, which is that, and of those five that were taken to the commission, of the 200 that were complained about, which was 0.4%, of the several hundreds of thousands that were complained about, of the tens of millions that were done or whatever it was, did out of the five that were brought forward, three were not from South Africa. Okay. <laughs> One of them, by the way, Faith, the host, Faith Mangope, who is a big deal in this country. She is a flipping big deal. I got kicked out by a big deal today. Dude. And she is sweet and she's smart and she's stylish and sophisticated. Dude. She misdescribed the Dove One. The Dove One was where like a, a black woman literally takes off her shirt and then she becomes a white woman. And it's like, oh, literally... That does sound pretty racist. That sounds pretty racist. I was sitting there. I was like, oh, my God, is that what happened? In the terms of reference, it just said a woman used soap that made her skin lighter. And I was like, oh, my God. No, they literally did that. And then I Googled it. I was like, oh, my word. I can see that clip. They literally did do that. Then after the show, Elena's like, reminds me, she beefed about this thing years ago, and I, and I did too at the time. Dude, the next thing that happens is that the white woman takes off her shirt and she becomes a Latina woman. And then the Latina woman takes her shirt off and she becomes a, like a East Asian woman. And then she takes off her shirt off and she looks like a subcontinental Indian woman. Then she takes her shirt off and she looks like a black woman. And then she takes her shirt off and looks like an Indian American. And then she takes her shirt off and do this like circle just keeps going back and forth through the same races, twice different races. But you just crop out the one bit. And then Elena was telling me about this interview with the actress. Can you imagine that black actress? who now after this thing has been cropped and around the world, they just show the one bit. So instead of it being, you know, the pitch was she loved the ad. We're all kind of the same underneath and we've got these skins on top and they're all like different outfits that you wear. She thought it was like a, like a, a, a modeling outfit metaphor, beautiful thing. That was actually the opposite of, of how it seemed when it was cropped. And but the effect of it being cropped did hurt her career, did hurt her esteem, did her hurt the way that some of her friends and family saw her. You know, what a nasty thing. And who cares, right? Who of all of the the people that like care all the time about people, who cares about that actress and how the unfair representation of those things make? Okay, dude, this is the this is the prelude. Here's the kicker, and this is the funny part, Nick. And I'm <laughs> it is so absurd, dude. One of the callers phone in and said 
Well, Gail, sorry, last Gail said the the advertising uh, regulatory board head said it's always the case, and she was actually taking it further than what a caller had said. She said it's always the case that if there's an advert about washing powder, um, it's always the case that black ladies are using the hand powder and white ladies are always using the machine. Or actually, the way she put it was worse. Whenever it's the machine, it's a white lady. And whenever it's the washing powder. So I was like, maybe it is the case with the washing powder. If you're seeing someone physically scrub clothes, maybe it's always a black lady. Then I thought twice about it. And I was like, that's definitely, I'm, I'm almost certain that's not true. Maybe not with hardcore washing soaps, but with like the stay soft things. I've definitely seen like, I don't know. Let me not comment. I'm thinking about this on live on radio. I'll leave that to the side because I don't know. Then she says, never a black woman with a washing machine in a South African advert. And I'm feeling stunned. I'm laughing inside. I'm trying to hold it in because I think that's a comically silly thing to say. But then, then it's a man who phones in and says, you know what I think is the most disgusting and racist thing in South African radio? It's that they always have black women in the advertisements for sanitary pads. Okay. And it's like they're trying to say that white women are, are never unsanitary. So it's only the the it's yeah. the the women you see with that are... dude. And then he goes on a bit of a spiel about how these kind of adverts incense him and the behavior that he thinks gets portrayed and whatever. And some other guy said that I shouldn't talk about our statistics with uh, racism is not the problem. You've had more, majority of people agree that politicians exaggerate race divisions in order to excuse their own failures. He says, you shouldn't talk about that. What about for Wurt? So now I'm dealing with <laughs> well, all what the about him? <laughs> So I was like, guys, let's just cover a few of these points. I've written them down. For Wurt was very, very terrible, and we're very upset with him, and we condemn him, and that was bad, and it did terrible things. And we're also very upset about the people that are alive and the policies that are alive. And we and we especially want to work on those ones where there's something we can do about it, uh, and let's work together. And you go through the checkpoints of the of the different things to deal with. And Faith kept giving me rope, which was really sweet. Um, and so I had and one other point, and then there's this one. And okay, by the way, let me just say, and then I'm like, guys, let's just remember that you know people can make mistakes. So. So I so I I criticized the gentleman who phoned in about the sanitary pads. And the thing that I said there was like, look, with the washing machines, I'm not sure because I'm not an expert in advertising with the hand washing and the washing machines. But you know, Gail said a hundred percent, a hundred percent. We should go check that out. If it's not like that, I hope, you know, she takes it back. Um because and if it is like that, then I think that uh, there's a problem. I don't know how explicit I was about all of this, but that's sort of more or less what I said about that. And then I said, but I am an expert, I guess, on this point, which is the sanitary pad thing. Because as it turns out, my sister was in an advert for sanitary pads. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I said, I, I haven't asked her what race she is. but." I think that the way she would come across in an advert to most people is as white. And more than that, I think that the sort of behavior uh, uh, thing that he's describing, 
might be pertinent to this ad. And to give a sense of this ad, it was like a sanitary pad ad who's ultra soft or whatever, whose tagline was, when I party, I party hardy. <laughs> it's like, I mean, his whole thing was like, they were like, why don't you like these ads? He's like, because they make the women seem like dirty and unhappy and then they put them on and then they're just so happy going around. And it's like, this is literally what that Ultrasoft ad was. Like, and it's an embarrassment <laughs> to my sister. Like, she had been a serious actress and she done plays and movies and then she like got into business, but like she needed a month's rent and they were like, hey, he has, he has an advert. <laughs> and, but looking back, it's, of course, anything about that kind of product is going to be, you know, it's a difficult product to advertise. Right. It's like in, in Mad Men, the whole show is about advertising and Heinz beans. You know, the more you eat, the more you fart. Like there's a whole seven episode sub-genre, sub-theme series about advertising beans. They make the most beautiful ad of going out of space and like motherhood, <laughs> technology, earthiness, like all of the all of the things you'd ever want. But it's still about beans and beans make you fart, so you can't get too far away. From right. It's like it's like how all toilet paper ads have puppies and butterflies in them. They're trying uh, so hard, dude. They're trying so hard. <laughs> and very little about toilets. <laughs> but this is the world we live in. Advertising's difficult. People keep trying. And here's this guy calling in to say this thing. And my word. What an easy, what a, it, I was, I feel like I was on such good behavior because it is such a sympathetic point to make. This dude saying there's a problem with racism in advertising because sanitary pads is always like this and it's only the black woman. It's like, well, dude, my sister, like I'm proud enough to say my sister was involved in something thing like that. And I'll laugh a bit about it, whatever, you know, but it's like, this is not a, we live in a society. We deal with all of these issues in public. That's what advertising is. It's dealing with the issues that you deal with by consumerism in public at a certain level. And they are funny and they're awkward and they're important. And we deal with them. And it's so good that we've got sanitary pads. And maybe where you're seeing a race problem, there's just a problem about life that we're dealing with. And it's complicated. Like, I'm not saying I could have taken it all the way there. I certainly didn't take it all the way. I just mentioned this thing. And then... Faith got back at me and was like, dude. I mean, I'm paraphrasing now. She did not say dude. <laughs> it would be very funny if she did say dude. <laughs> like, no, but she accused me of insulting our people and the listener. And so I said, are they all are, are all listeners the same? Do people not make mistakes? Does criticism not come from a place of respect? And and eventually she was sick of my 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 line of questions the last thing i said was i'm so pleased that i'm here thank you for inviting me and that was it she could not i was being so polite she couldn't handle it anymore and then she said you are uninvited i said what are you kicking me out for for saying your listeners are not all the same and they're not always perfect and neither are you and neither are I. we both make mistakes she said i'm kicking you out because you're challenging our people so then i had to leave the studio so i mean i'm upset to be treated like that i'm always upset about it but i'm also i do feel like there just comes a time in your career where maybe if you're if you're uh, maybe you need to get kicked out or walk away and just know what that feels like 
Like I've been called so many things so many times. Maybe it's good to just know what it's like to walk away. So I'm holding on to that goodness. And I'm actually quite delighted about it because our old boss, Franz Crunier, he said that one day you either need to get kicked out or you need to walk away. Um, <laughs> and, and that day turns out to be today, which happens to be an amazing day in history. 30 years after the, the St. Patrick's Day referendum, yes, no, on apartheid. There was yes, a wrong a answer. There was this a right a answer. And we, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. We got the right answer. Another great joy to celebrate. Zero racist ads in the last 80 million. And 30 years after one good part of the, of the ugly to beautiful story that we're trying to build here. I think it's a wonderful day. And I know it's very cheesy to say so, Nicholas. But it's good to it's be with you on this day. I think it says something about the fact that when you said we should talk about the referendum, I had to check. I had to say, you mean the 1992 one? Because I couldn't remember off the top of my head what day it was was held on. You know, I've definitely read it's in a book somewhere. But despite the fact that it was this really important uh, part of our history when, you know, white South Africans at the ballot box decisively said we're going to move past apartheid, uh, it's just not kind of officially held up or recognized or part of our, our, our collective conscious on this one. And did no one talk about it? Yeah, I'm I'm popping a beer to toast to toast the referendum. I really think it deserves a toast. I will say it's so obvious, and and I think we are in such a brilliant position to say the obvious thing, the obvious mistake to make would be to celebrate this in the name of a race. And surely to goodness, part of the reason. Part of the reason it's quieter than one might otherwise expect it to be is that there's sort of a social touchiness about celebrating a, a, a whites-only election. Yes. Uh, you know, I I think that that impulse don't celebrate that. That impulse is a good impulse. I and you we push that impulse. Good. It's a good discipline. But it is amazing that. Nowhere in the news, nowhere on the radio, nowhere in our circles even has there been much by way of, guys, let's just let's sit down. Let's talk about today. This is a special day. And more than that, it shouldn't take us that much by surprise. We figured out about this overlap many years ago when we lived in Ireland, briefly. You know, <laughs> it's it's like we get an annual reminder of the particular date and it's always close to the to the big freedom day election anniversaries and all those things that are coming up and and i absolutely respect that those days should deserve more because they all an all-race democracy manifesting its first election as 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 complicated as that election is that is that must be a bigger deal and it is a bigger deal we would we wouldn't have gotten april 27th if we hadn't had march 17th 17th and it's 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 a uh, it's not a the end of the race, history. but it's a very important step on the road, as you said. In in the whole world, how many anti-apartheid? Re- I was thinking, what should you call this? <laughs> One of the things, because when we were talking about it before, this like I googled it, and I took the screenshot to share, and then 
afterwards I looked at the screenshot and I was like, it's curious how it's named by Google, right? Because this does give a very clear, we between us at different times can call it different things. And some writer can call it this and someone else can call it that. What does Google call it, right? This is an important question insofar as it answers like the thing about us in the broadest extensive sense that that term can take. And, and the names for it were all white election and apartheid referendum. And I thought apartheid referendum is pretty good. But right. I really like anti-apartheid referendum. How many in the history of humanity anti-apartheid referendums have there been? Isn't that too an yeah, interesting... Yeah. I... I mean, you know, it's always sometimes a bit difficult to think off the top of your head, but I, I really can't think of anything too comparable. In some ways, the election of Abe Lincoln. Certainly not the passing. I mean, he kind of went in. Yeah, but, but Abe Lincoln didn't say he was going to abolish slavery. No, exactly. I'm they're, they're, the, What the Americans had was much more the representative ideal. People somehow had an instinct to choose a person who would choose the right path forward. Yes. Representative democracy, it was the great insight of the Romans after the Greeks, right? <laughs> that you that there is an expertise to figuring out what should we do? Just as there is an expertise to figuring out how deep do you dig the pit latrines? Uh, and it's very nice that you have experts. And 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 so you you help you you, you figure out the experts together, maybe. But you let the experts figure out some of the details. South Africa's was kind of the other way around, in a way. Of course, it was led. Um, in the in the referendum sense, I do think de Klerk played an important leadership role there. And I and and Mandela played a huge leadership role there, and so on down the line. Like there was a lot of good leadership for peace. But there's a very direct democracy sort of thing going on there. Um that I wonder how many, uh, you know, in a way, maybe this is the this is our in absentia pushback on Rian Malan. When 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 we were discussing the the clerk, we sort of started by discussing his piece um, about the clerk. I think he wrote ten years ago, but which was then republished in the Spectator as a kind of obituary. And it said, how many emperors have given up their empire, have like voluntarily surrendered, and without even. Uh, losing particularly many soldiers, uh, and it and it is an interesting way to you know to think of apartheid as an empire, which in right. which in many ways it was a small little kind of in many ways small minded and good at engineering sort of empire, um, the the tallest war a little fascist empire, and. Um, and maybe it's amazing for a fascist empire to kind of referendum its way out. Maybe it's hard to think of another example because there really isn't much by way of another example. I don't know. How did the Spanish and the Portuguese do it? Uh, the Portuguese had a coup. Uh, the Spanish lost a bunch of wars. Uh, yeah, the British and French sort of kind of did it by referendum, but it wasn't so clean or obvious. It was more like 
you know, voting for a decolonization party and then holding referendums in the individual territories. And, you know, it, it wasn't like the same kind of clarity and they were put under pressure by the Americans and the Soviets and they were tired and expend and out of money after the first and second world wars so dude and this was yeah. decolonization decolonization is a different story insofar as you still hold on to the mother of all parliaments as the brits would put it in their case and um and what what did the french call their parliament parliament i guess Par parle parlement <laughs> parlement <laughs> dude, oh. uh, uh uh, apartheid was colonialism a special type in some sense but also very much not um and it's it's the it's that absolute surrender of power in the in the sense that it is absolute uh which doesn't apply to decolonization uh which makes it all the more special right um right. anyway i mean i do think i think it's sort of I don't know, Nick. Okay, so decolonization is close. Um, without a coup, without a... Emancipation is kind of close. I do think emancipation... So counterfactual. Right. My favorite counterfactual is, couldn't South Africa have become sort of an all-race democracy? Not the whole country, but like parts of it. The Transvaal. Couldn't the Transvaal have become the flipping Taiwan or Hong Kong or Singapore? You know, the amazing thing of its day, a uh, hundred and twenty-five years ago, sort of around the time that wasps were plotting the Jamison raid, uh, they were sort of onto something. There was this amazing, amazing potential. Unfortunately, they were pretty entitled and racist. Uh, <laughs> what a great combination. Set, set up a worse combination. I think the sort of, you know, maybe it's utopian, but I, you know, the, the sort of thing going on between the Buffer King and Kruger, the, as it would turn out, the, the greatest blessing in platinum and the, and the greatest blessing in gold, sort of to sit, to sit in uh, close proximity. That, that something could have been done there. And then race might have been in sort of, gender's role and gender might have been more in race's role in other words like the first the the first quite democratic voluntary surrender of power in that sense um i think is the is the new zealand extension of franchise to all women in like 1890 something the 90s yeah the first country to do it imagine if at that point that would be exactly the point at which the the Transvaalers should have been like a spritz and deliberate. We are even more sophisticated than the Cape people because we make more money and they've got the colored franchise and a little bit of this and a little bit. Like we are like proper, 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 proper Democrats, but with an age limit of 60. Like you've got to get to 60 years old and then you can vote for the. <laughs> Which was close to their idea. I think this, this would have been even better than the referendum if we'd had an all race. Only over 60s democracy. And we wouldn't have had the 20th century. <laughs> From 18, oh, man, we could have skipped all those goddamn wars. Well, we could have skipped the second one. The first one, I think, had to happen. <laughs> but if the Boers had stayed out of the First World War and stayed out of the UK and made all of the money out of all of the gold that they made and sort of 
beneficiary kept kept lots of it kept a lot of that money in the region and black white indian colored businesses had grown around that i don't know about indian uh, because i can't really remember when the number of indentured laborers was a lot but maybe not that far away anyway if it had been non-racial albeit very paternalistic and conservative in the law um if it had been cutting edge in that way and held on to all of that gold and avoided all of the pitfalls of world war one they could have done this this terrible this terrible myth about the rothschilds that now ferguson debunks in the napoleonic wars you know like the the german idea yes. was uh, i've heard this idea before that the rothschilds basically what funded the war or something or got rich off of the war uh, and and this is like one of the central a lot of the sort of you know either one world government new world order conspiracies or the uh, anti-semitic conspiracy stuff often start with saying yeah you see here's where the problem began yes this is the moment they 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 helped everything tank so to super cheap then they bought it very low and then it quickly restored to its original value but that made them 10 100 times 1000 times wealthier and put them deeply in bed with all of the major power players, um, which would keep them sort of picking winners and losers uh, and making it seem democratic for the next long while and really choosing the policies. Now, this theory, it's, it's a good theory because it personifies something that really is happening. It's stupid because it personifies it and because it's wrong and it racializes it very often. But it's good because the general pattern is not bad. You know, this is the invisible hand. It's like peasants... Like we were when we were teenagers, we were like, how come we can afford to, you know, go out and have a beer and still make it back and, and have like a, a Steers burger? Why is the ratio of money in my pocket always working out for beers and Steers burgers on, on like weekends as a 19-year-old first year at university? Well, it's because the market's figured out how many beers you want and how many burgers you need and and sort of how to price things so that you've got a good enough chance of getting a bit of both and all of that kind of thing. It's an invisible hand, but you can personify it, as we sometimes did by talking about the beer burger fairy, who sort of sat above the <laughs> nightclub, <laughs> weighing yeah, up their true value. And <laughs> my, my my first year was very much more weighted towards the uh, the burger side than the beer side, I must admit. But anyway, yes. <laughs> yeah, I was pro I, I was never more than a one burger. But a one burger burger. But the point is, there, there is a gen, there is an actual thing that happens, especially in times of war, which is that the disruption in property rights, the destruction of property, which is what originates that the disruption in property rights. But often there's also a, a political point of initiation, and then two, and the two things ripple hard together. This sort of cuts the fat. It trims the roses. It prunes the roses. It's, it does all kinds of things. It burns the grass. Awful, terrible, but from a very strict alien power analysis perspective. It redistributes um, power in, in a very beautiful human way. You can say with Herodotus that the, 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 the quantity of tears is finite but that they move around and nothing moves them around as fast as tears. Uh, a, a, as the case may be, the, 
the patterns of 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 shift the, the, the shifting patterns of wealth and power through the build up to World War One, World War One, Great Depression, World War Two. Um, they really continue to ricochet, and I think that it would have been much better if it had started out. That century had started out with a kind of with a bit of a Boer mafiosa. So, you know, not to play too heavily into the personification thing, but that would be the simple way to think about it. The more abstract way to think about it would be that non-racialism would have been much more normal much sooner because the prestige of extreme wealth would have gone with it. Uh, the extreme wealth that had the first, you know, lamppost in Kimberley and and uh, diamond balls in the, in the hoity-toity rooms, you know... <sighs> The opera houses, the interesting artists, the brilliant new ideas, the discoveries of the most important caves. For example, I think one of the ways that it seems less utopian than it might otherwise seem is that the 19th century greatest, the 19th century equivalent of Facebook and Twitter in the United Kingdom, which was the greatest power of the 19th century, is to my mind undoubtedly like spelunking. That was 19th century <laughs> Twitter. It's like expensively dressed gentlemen with large trains of people helping them along, looking for butterflies and caves and trying to understand how the continents meshed and for bones of dinosaurs. And more than anything, Nicholas, more than anything for one thing. Lake Victoria. Even more than that. And that was the biggest lake story. Even more than that, the whole world, the whole British aristocracy looking for the missing link. <laughs> and where would they have found it? Right here. And the world's greatest university of sort of 1905 Joseph Conrad era English gentlemen, you know, sort of Polish English gentlemen, English gentlemen that are so English they're Polish. <laughs> could, have been, <laughs> could have been writing their novels in peace-loving little Switzerland, but instead of it being Switzerland, it would have been the Boer Republic. And I think we would have, in my imagined version, not sponsored the fascists and the, and the WASP fascists and the, and the Franco ridiculouses. They would have tried to push non-racialism at the very least, and they might have sponsored a bit of communism and a bit of libertarianism. Um, but those experiments just seem so much more respectable to me. So I kind of prefer that alternative reality. I mean, I do too, but I, I certainly think I think South Africa was a very hard place back then, and it was difficult for people to look out beyond the 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 traditional lifeboats of clinging to identity and clan uh, to get them through that harsh world. And as a result, I think that utopia you speak of was unfortunately not going to come anytime soon. Um, despite the wish of many people that it had come sooner. I think, unfortunately, uh, you know, maybe the first chance we any had a ever had a realistic chance of it was 1948 or just before 1948. But we had already gone through the difficulties of the previous years. The, the, the sad truth is I think South Africa was a very hard place and everyone was clinging to clan and clan and community back then so that it wasn't really going to happen unfortunately uh you see i think hardness no i disagree because hardness can do amazing things this is part of the reason 
I think this is not such an absurd idea is precisely how hard it was. Because I think for communism to have taken root in Russia the way that it did, and without that, the history of the 20th century really is very different, depended on, in part, how hard it was. Because it was quite a... There was some tribe stuff and some peasant resentments and uh, you know all kinds of reasons. And, in fact, as it turned out, all kinds of ways in which um, sort of pretty base impulses uh, didn't quite go away but found alternative avenues of, of subtle but brutal expression um, in the Soviet Union. But I, I, I do think that the, the grandness of the experiment, the extent to which people gathered around an attempt to eradicate property rights and build a society of sharing and caring, uh, it, 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 it could only have worked the way that it did in a place as hard living as that. Uh, it takes huge pressure to make diamonds. And I think that part of the reason it would work here is if in this situation, part, you know, part of what happens is that uh, maybe the British go after the Boer republics halfway through World War I uh, because the Boers, like the Swiss will do, especially in World War II, are really profiting off both sides. Um, and the Brits are like, no, we need lots of gold. That's just have another little raid and this time it'll really be worth it because we've got emergency measures if everyone wears a mask and socially distances you can say it's for for his majesty you know whatever the equivalent sort of prurient as them argument is that works out at the time they go off and they do it and they lose like perhaps the russians will lose to the ukrainians they lose to a sort of plucky side but much more devastatingly because in fact they're fighting a whole other war at the meanwhile so it's really like a three-month campaign that is completely chased back not resulting in any kind of namby-pamby negotiation um because this this is like a hard rock that has bounced off the basketball and the terms will only be sought at the very end of the day at which point everyone will be so embarrassed that they try to go there in the first place that they'd be quite willing to keep them on board um this is this is the sort of happy version of that, and it, and it just concentrates prestige. Nick, my central the thought is this: something about America. You could have done this in America, but you would have had to start earlier. Right. The thought is that somewhere between the what Rian called the the, the doper, in that very old sense of anti enlightenment, the people who doper meaning like a candle snuffer, whose idea was that you, <laughs> they were escaping Europe. <laughs> people who thought yes like thank goodness we've left a place where they're, <laughs> where they're doing science <laughs> right Preppers, there's all this terrible or this or this terrible innovation everywhere it's just horrible uh, dude that does in a way very unfortunately come to define a, and, a lot of political important moments but the opposite energy was also there and if that had been unleashed it would have been amazing there's, there's an interesting thing actually there because people might say, well, you know, weren't they like quite radical Protestants and wasn't Protestantism like a sort of new take on Christianity? But the thing is, Protestants saw themselves as uh, 
as I guess the reactionaries, as people who were restoring an original Christianity that was lost. It was an attempt to look back, not an attempt to look forward, um, at least initially. And those were the people who first founded those uh, Dutch Reformed communities in Southern Africa. So for them, you know, innovation, as as for most of the the the, the world pre. 1800 basically innovation was not a good thing innovation was a bad thing because it meant that it was untried untested and rubbish <laughs> yeah disrupted all kinds of and it often meant more cash it meant like you know if you as a certain kind of family man could command the respect of a dozen in this slightly more innovative world like three or four of them on the fringes have peeled off to join some factory or some industrialized army or some uh move it around bridge building part of the engineering corps that sort of has permanent labor in, instead of the occasional stuff that used to happen in yesteryear and and that left the very tightly knit uh esteem networks the the, the esteem net the sort of homebound esteem networks very tightly knit with power um and there, there's a proper trade-off because, you know, I don't know, family power, state power, all those kinds of things. There'll always be a bit of a tension. Um, but it played out very unfortunately in South Africa, the sort of anti-innovation strand. In a way, I, I remember, I've been remembering through the course of these dark days, um, one of the few military experts that I managed to spend time with when i was in america and when i was in america i got to spend time with soldiers smart soldiers now and then and it was interesting this guy when we did get onto south africa he sort of just gave 15 minutes of rapture about the <laughs> lager he was like this <laughs> i think at some stage he called it like Nick, you'll know better. Like whatever Abrams tank is the most sophisticated tank in the American yeah, Army. M1, uh, M1 Abrams, M1 A1 Abrams tank, the main battle that's, tank of the U.S. Army. That's been basically the same design for for a while, and it's really good. And it's and it's you know they they improve it on the fringes, but it's just amazing. It's like hard to imagine. Like the future's got to be drone. Can, can I go on a can I go on a, a lager related tangent? You might okay. Let me just say his his thought was like the loggers were the most advanced thing that I never go. The most advanced dead end, I think, was the. Uh, there've been there've been <laughs> that's I like that phrase. Um, there've been a lot of a lot of wagon forts, obviously, over history because you know as soon as you've got a bunch of wagons and you've got a bunch of soldiers, it's pretty logical to maybe combine oh, them in some way. They stick together. Yes, that's why there's so much differentiation. Yeah, there's different. But what problems. we might. What we might call the the wagon fort or the lager was invented actually by the Czechs, by a, a radical proto-Protestant group called the Hussites, who realized that if you put a bunch of guys with crossbows, spears, and very early firearms in a wagon fort, you could actually tell the nobility to go stuff themselves. Uh, and there was something like four <laughs> Catholic That's crusades called, called against the the Czech. The Czech Hussites, the Czech proto-Protestants, um, in the in the early 1400s, trying to right. snuff out this heresy, and every single time they were beaten back by these little wagon forts, which were incredibly mm. effective. So it is it is a it's a it's a fascinating piece of military technology because it's always been used by 
outnumbered, often kind of less, you know, uh, sides where you don't necessarily expect them to win. They're often less professional, and yet they go on to win these amazing victories uh, in in uh, across time and across time and space. So the the wagon Ford is a really fascinating piece of technology from that angle, as, as it kind of was in South Africa. It's interesting in you say ways. that because it it reminds me of this line by Bernard Lewis, which was this this historian of of the Islamic era that we've talked about too many times. Uh, I the the great Princeton guy who who, who wrote the book What Went Wrong uh, about. <laughs> <laughs> about the Middle East uh, that got published on like September 10th, 2001. <laughs> it's, a kind of, it's a kind of thing where you, you just you just sit there. It's like uh, the opposite of that happened. I think there was a, oh yes, there was a, there was a, an American writer, sort of neocon Jewish guy called John Fedoritz. I listen to his podcast quite a lot. And uh, he published a book that came out, I think, just before the November of 2016, called Hillary Clinton, Why She Can't Be Stopped. Oh. <laughs> it was an anti-Hillary book, by the way. He was talking about how, you know, Hillary's going to be the president and this is what the American and right needs so to do bad. to prepare. Okay. And oh, it's God. so terrible. And then and then she lost. And he was like, So does oh. anti-Hillary anti and anti-Trump, I guess, maybe in yes. part. <laughs> and not to be very prescient. Very wise. Very wise. Oh god! Yeah, this one, this one too. Very present, very wise. He did see something went wrong. I guess something went right. Oh my word! Blessed be his name. Um, but he had, I thought, one of his most profound and you know, one of you know, he gets very esoteric and he says, maybe things turn out a little bit differently because in one tradition, in one sort of met, in one very large esteem market, uh. Things line up to sustain uh, a harmonic music, a polyrhythmic music, but also also polyphonic, which is the sort of word for music that has more than one melody. There's more than one melodious line competing for your foremost attention. You can't really answer the question, what is the most important melodious line? And Baroque music is is typified. Bach is is, is the is the great sort of polyphonic era. As it happens, Dostoevsky, who's recently been cancelled in some places, was the great polyphonic novelist. Um, because because the idea there was, and William Faulkner, the the great American writer of of whom it was said, you know, the, the past is not dead. It's not even past. It was also a great polyphonic writer. It's just there's no there's no one perspective. That's the right one, or the ultimate one, or the primary one. It's it really there is this competition of melodies or perspectives. And and Lewis, you know, very esoterically thought, maybe if you look at Gregorian chant and you look at um, Italian papal music and the way that it emerged for various lucky reasons to do with technological designs of musical instruments as well as some creative spirit, all kinds of weird intersections of things. Um, this this sort of choir, this world of the choir and the competing melodies um, ends up sustaining a more democratic style of government. And the world of the 
as you know, that beautiful mosque chant, that uh, sort of one voice traipsing up and down and tripping around the skyline in quarter tones in these very subtle, amazingly, sort of almost subliminally precise uh, movements around the tonic, around the, the human ear's sensitivity space. That 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 one voice does these amazing things, but but Iran is a bit of a dirge, is a bit of a is a is is a bit of a amorphous sound, something that's not quite that's certainly not a melody competing for for an equivalent sort of individualism. And I think that's a nice idea of of at the very least, let's try and embrace both kinds of music to see the good things that both of those do to our brain. But on the harder side, Bernard Lewis speaks to this point that you've just addressed, which is the, the battlefield as a training ground. And he says one of the most embarrassing things about Darul Islam, the, the world of Islam, after the great genius, you know, it was the West before the West, or at least on Apple's version. But it revived the Byzantine culture and society that was having a tough time due to yes. infighting over religion. Yeah. But it was it it, it 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 really had a golden age. And then, what is the most embarrassing thing? That in like fourteen hundred and fifty, I don't know, after Constantinople, there are these Islamic military generals writing letters about maybe taking on some of the tactics and techniques that had been used by the infidel. And one or two of them get beheaded, and the rest of them quickly go into the night gently and amazingly you know saladin the great sort of darul islam general of one of the early crusades he had the, the he had played you know he had learned a little bit from his enemy he wasn't afraid to sort of incorporate things he was in fact he was celebrated for being an innovative and creative thinker and a guy but by the time you get 600 500 years later however long it is there's such a tradition of traditionalism of only looking back that Bernard Lewis traces it to like 220 years before the simple military insight is actually incorporated. And then they never turn back because it's just the right idea. You know, it's like there's a good way to tie your shoelaces and then there's that silly way. And once you figure out the good way, you just keep doing this. Um, but it took 200 years to figure out. And and the thought that the, that the lager was, was a similar technology where you know once once these times have figured it out there's there's like a there's a couple of centuries of everyone else not quite figuring out what these people have figured out not 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 judging the actions by what they are but instead i don't know falling back on the same bones that are being thrown the same stars that are being gazed the same prophets that are being consulted as they you know gobble lambs eyeballs this sort of <laughs> Petty, I don't know what do we call it these days. Well, the news, you know, right. CNN, Fox, like it's just like awful, awful fake prophecy business. Like, uh, I think a lot of it was to do with the fact that you know wagon fort means you can't ride heroically around on a horse and run people over. Hmm. Uh, and so, what's the point of going to war if you can't get a whole bunch of esteem from it? If you have to sit around in a smelly, smelly bunch of wagons with a bunch of peasants. Waiting for the enemy to come to you. What a horrible, horrible idea. The southern general who lost the war, they called the Queen of Spades. <laughs> <laughs> and so he wouldn't dig down anymore and drove 
his man. To Gettysburg, and then it was very, it was a very great victory. Actually, I'm very glad. That was one good case of hubris. Sometimes hubris works out. <laughs> no, that's definitely true. In favor um, of sorry, another another tangent. What was the sort of ethnic background or origin of Saladin? Do you know? Greatest hero of the Arabic world? No, greatest hero of the Islamic world. Of the Islamic world, is, but also of the of the Arabic world too. Is he is he Farsi or something? He's a Kurd. Oh, even it's more Farsi <laughs> than Farsi. <laughs> oh my goodness. Look, Nick, you're gonna get me a segue to the war, which I don't want to do because the Armenians who are almost in the same zone as the Kurds in terms of being just wonderfully, wonderfully Dude, bugged. Like, oh you, man, what you, is yeah, that? you wanna you wanna you wanna look at a, a, a history and it's much it goes back much further before there was even an identifiable Kurdish history. The Armenians have had one of the roughest histories in all of humanity. They have had a real battering for deep, a very, deep rough. very long time. Awful. And they're awful, still there, mostly because they live in mountains. <laughs> yeah, dude. So let's let's continue. If had 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 Kruger and Lerua the second's grandfather, whose name I should know, had the Transvaalers uh, and the Buffer King made peace and made a kind of proud non-racialism compact and set up a sort of diamond gold mini Switzerland in the tip of Africa empire and somehow bombed like the only other very slightly naughty thing that they'd have to do is, 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 is drop the world's Tsarina bomba of dynamite through the Suez canal so that South Africa remains the key shipping avenue. But it wouldn't have been that hard to do. Okay, so it's a slightly dystopian world, but that is the sad thing that happens out of World War One is that they completely wreck the canal. And so for 20 years, South Africa maintains shipping high status. That combination, I think, creates a global empire, which in the beginning is run by the Armenians, the Kurds, the Boers, the South Koreans, the, the Sutis and the Tswanas, <laughs> And and perhaps maybe even dare I say it, a few sort of Ukrainian anarchists. Um, sound nice. Some really I mean, weird yeah. Ukrainian guys around the uh, around the ninth, the beginning of the twentieth century. And some like yeah, and some and some Muscovite geniuses. We can have all the we can all have all the wobbly wobblies. All the all the people who really thought it's much 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 more interesting to be very productive in the day. So that in the afternoon and the evening, you can have a drink with a friend and sort of disagree and agree and like explore strange and wonderful ideas. That's much better than being semi-productive and then being so bloody half-assed that in the afternoon, all you can afford to do is like say, those guys are the enemy, let's take them out. And then you keep saying that dinner after dinner to the point where you end up banging your head against the wall and and making awfulness which is sort of what happened for 40 years in europe i'm saying we could have we could have turned 40 years into into seven and a half if if we'd had some luck some non-racialism could have been imagine this place instead of ireland as the seedbed for post british domination like even if they do win the war we become like ireland corporate tax rate 12 percent 
Google and Apple are headquartered in Richards Bay. Uh, uh, you remember that, that it took a very long time for uh, for Ireland to get to that place that it is today. It I was I, it was the I'm third world country in Western Europe <laughs> for a long time. It was like the Ukraine yeah. of Western Europe. Dude, I am combining the best things about Ireland. St. Patrick's Day, March seventeenth, notwithstanding, I'm combining the best things of Ireland and um, and Switzerland and South Korea. You combine those three things, you have them here in 1895. I think that's all sort of possible. We would be, we would be, we would truly be sitting in. They they would call New York the Joburg of America. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm afraid <laughs> that with most counterfactuals, there's uh, an awful lot of. <laughs> What this is interesting rather than this is the way, unfortunately. Dude, uh, it's a happy day. You can rain on my parade, but I was <laughs> kicked out of studio. And 30 years ago, there was like this wonderful vote, which is just one of the many wonderful things that happened in a great journey to what must work out as an excellent, excellent Republican story. Well, it allowed me to it allowed me to grow up in a country that was mostly safe and had some opportunities and has given me a very good life. And for that, I am very thankful for those people who voted yes in 1992. Mm. And I'm, I'm sure you feel exactly the same way because you grew up in the same era, a little bit ahead of me, but basically the same thing. Not much. Yeah, dude. God, if, they, if it had gone the other way, our lives would have been... Oh my, well, my parents probably would have left the country or maybe we would have been conscripted into fighting some grisly racial war that just ground on forever you know we'd be like i don't know syria or something <laughs> quite frankly uh yeah if you can did it, you have the, that, the goal did... the goal of all states should be to not be syria <laughs> it's a good way to put it south sudan <laughs> yeah south sudan also although south sudan south, Look, sudan, at some level... south sudan a state is a very mm, mm. yeah exactly <laughs> GPS, a GPS series of coordinates. Did you get the question in high school? Like, I found in high school we had enough time where we were neither working nor partying too hard, you know, sober childhood, nor playing rugby, that people did talk about counterfactuals. And they talked about it enough to know. In an important way, anything could have happened. And teenagers especially hold on to that thought because it's so painful, because it feeds that teenage angst. Oh, God, I could have been anything, like the best and the worst. Uh, um, but we used to have this question of if, 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 it had, if it had happened or if it was happening now or if it's going to happen in 10 years, three different questions depending on when in the night and so on. Um, what side of the race war would you be on? Isn't the point of a race war is that you tend to not get much of a choice? See, I had that question a lot at high school. Not a lot, but I would say once a year from grade nine, and not because I was asking the question, just because it is the kind of thing that dudes would talk about. And for most of you, high school... You had a much more I'm, intellectual grade than I did. 
<laughs> I can promise you that. <laughs> I doubt it. I think you guys probably were very intellectual, but but maybe we talk more about race in the boarding house because of the. Because uh, of... but you see, I, I wasn't in the boarding house, so I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it was all of was, those, all of those conversations was, except one was with boarders. Right. I I think it was the same when you were there, but uh, when I was there, the boarding house was interesting because, for various reasons, uh, the boarding house was majority black generally. Yeah. Uh, or at least yeah, close to, um, which is not the oh, case. Strong, the strong majority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which made I think probably gave it a slightly different dynamic in terms of the way that the kids there hung out. Uh, I was a day student, so you know I didn't have anything so intellectual going on. Because <laughs> <laughs> when 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 uh, what is it, two thirty five or whatever it was came, I was home. <laughs> was well, on my way home. Yeah, I mean, dude, I I think the fact that we talk so much, I think if we, you know, is just a function of we're spending we're spending more time around each other, and there's just necessarily less TV time, less alone time, less reading time, less less. Boarding that boarding houses like growing up in a you know with six brothers, but actually there's even more than that. Yeah. Um. Uh. But yeah, dude, I I think part of it was also the fact that it's like you're in a you're in a private high school in South Africa, and uh as much as there's new money and there's new money going to um, black people that grew up in sort of quite harsh apartheid circumstances, often already very not as harsh as some others. Um, like if, if I think back to the Ramaposas, it's interesting to me to think back that Rama's father was already like right. Just just to remind our listeners, Gabriel was at school with uh, was his son. Yeah, his his second his eldest son left. Sort of was mainly at Hilton and then came to Saint briefly, but his second son Tumelo was there with us uh, a year above me uh, in in boarding house. Uh, he was in Collins. I was in my Stevens, but same dining hall and same hanging out. And and there was a clear example, and there were several. I'm just using him as the most famous of a dude who whose parents are actually turned out many years later to be donating scholarship money. <laughs> they're not just paying for their own kids; they're sort of donating to the school, which is great. Um, and I remember what it was like to be at Princeton. And there's Rockefeller, um, my friend, in my frat inside a building named after his family. You know. <laughs> Oh, that's a legacy. <laughs> right. And that will happen, dude. There is no doubt that there's going to be a Ramaposa cricket stadium or something. You know, there's the, the it's it's the same thing. And it's interesting when it's new money. Die Data, which is the biggest IT company, Mickey Ord, Jeremy Ord was his father, is like one of you know, he was I don't know, he lost all kinds of ridiculous money in a day, which I remember was being sad and funny, but also on the stock exchange. You know, there's like it, it, it is a thing about those schools that that you you plug into those things even though you you're only focused on tuck shop pocket money um but i think the the 
the thing about the 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 race debates it's partly because you're in a school with such wealth and such poverty partly because it's a majority white school but a majority black boarding house partly it's because apartheid was so terrible and the new south africa is such a great dream but the new south africa is also so flippant terrible especially well understood by dudes who are going back to the townships on weekends uh and partly it's just because you're teenagers and you're hanging out and so one of the questions was which side would you fight on in the war? So, Nicholas, which side would you fight on in the war? First, the side that was probably most likely to win. <laughs> because, you know, when it comes to when life gets that bad, when you start to enter into something like a civil war, society breaks down to such a level that uh, trying to, you know, the main goal is just, I think, trying to survive. Um and that's that's actually one of the reasons why I'm so happy we never got to that situation, because it would have been horrifying. It would have been dehumanizing. So I don't know. I you know, the person that grew up in that environment would be so different to the person I am today. I can't even imagine how to answer that question uh, correctly. You know, uh, would I fight for the black side that was more communist? Uh, would I fight for the white side that was, and hopefully more non-racial? Would I fight for the white side that was more kind of, you know, sort of free market or liberal for whites? What a horrible, miserable choice that I never want to make. And that's why I would probably run away from the country rather than pick a side in that war. Yeah, not picking a side is very good as a first answer. But then the second question is, but the war has come to you. And so and so the the war is not letting you choose a side. The war is denying you that choice. You to not pick a side. Yes. The war has come to you. It has come to your doorstep. This is the nature of war. Now what do you do? Like I said, I guess I picked the side that was most likely to keep me alive. Yeah. It's a good, it's a very interesting answer, Nick. You say it like Terence, and I don't know, you see, my impulse is to not trust you at all. Because I know my answer at the time, and I, I, it does seem to me, looking back on my life, that it remains a relatively persuasive answer. And pre presaged by a, a memory, as I put it back then, of my aunt at least the first time when it was the most intense, of my aunt who had said um, at, at an Easter, the Easter before, actually, it was such a strange thing. When she was asked by her daughter, what would you have done if you were there on Easter? And she said, I don't know. My aunt, a Christian teacher, and her husband, a minister in the church, and she goes every Sunday and most Tuesdays and Wednesdays and helps with the church, and with the church of the school, very, very dedicated Christian. What would you do on Easter? Would you try and lay down your life to save Jesus Christ? Or would you just join the Romans in kind of gambling at his feet? It was such an obvious question to me at the time. It was like a 14-year-old. It's no brainer. My aunt said, I don't know. I hope I would do this, but I don't know. Because it's so scary. 
and it's so like who knows what you really know and it's very complicated so i don't know i'm sorry but that's how it is i was amazed by that answer and this is what you're saying uh and at some level like at some level i agree but at some level i think or my answer was that i would i would i would choose the side that was more just <laughs> uh, uh, you know what that, i and like that idea and it's the kind of idea if it was in 1976 i would be i'd hope i'd be running on hector peterson's side you know and at another point I, whatever do you know you'd like who in that situation sorry it's a madness you see this, this that's kind of answer that only a, a teenager can give though no like, but i honest. it's still no dude <laughs> i completely disagree it is still don't you think okay we've got to wrap it up he has yes, my got a show to go to it's, it's a wonderful thing it's finally put a time limit on our, on our show <laughs> my 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 concluding hypothesis for for yes. the referendum day is that it's very difficult but one does have to make judgments and And sometimes it comes out. Sometimes it comes out like this: you've made a judgment of loyalty, and that is what it is, and you stick with it. And that truly is the life of a soldier. And I like the idea of soldiers disobeying illegal orders, and I'm sure now and then it does even happen. But it's flipping abnormal for the very good reason. That generals want soldiers that do what they're told, and so and some humans right. really, you know, there's a whole way that it works, and a soldier is a soldier. And and then there's like a merchant who's trying to buy for five and sell for ten. The thing you were pretending, just see how I can make the most out of it as I can. And there are merchants. And so, merchandising, oh, what a wonderful thing. But there as a separate matter on a on yet a third orthogonal plane, X axis, Y axis, let's get three-dimensional. Dude, there is another dimension. And and you surely to goodness have found yourself in a job where if you were ordered to do something that you even had like a 60% issue with doing. And not just because you're lazy like me <laughs> but like a proper reason right if you had a 60 percent proper reason you would not do it and in fact it'd be easy to not do it because you could write like you know some people think this and i think that you know we we live in a world with great wiggle room with great maneuver for for avoiding picking one side or the other and i say implicit in that for not having to pick the wrong side if it does turn out that you can't pick one side or the other, you have, I mean, if you if you can't abstain for much longer, can't abstain. Yeah. yeah, then 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 the capacity to pick whichever side and to understand that you can pick whichever side in such a circumstance, and to be relieved that you don't have to that there's this fucking that there's this third option at the moment. I think it's wonderful, and I and I think you know it, and I think you're very very sneaky sneaky chap. <laughs> so. So what's what's my answer then, Gabriel? What would I do? <laughs> I think your answer is uh, that you'd fight on the right side, 
but that you'd prefer to fly a drone than sort of... <laughs> <laughs> well, presumably in this counterfactual he... universe, I'd be much fitter than I am now. No, not necessarily, dude. You could be the great drone flyer for, <laughs> for, for Liberty's army. If the referendum had gone the wrong way, I'd like to think that we'd be podcasting from the sort of barracks of... <laughs> I yeah I, I look I'd like to think so too. Gela River uh, under under play, or even better from Moscow Deep House Radio. We could be we could be playing radio <laughs> DJ vibes and occasionally flying drone sorties to deliver packages of food to sort of freedom fighters in South Africa. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that I, dystopian world did not have to happen. Yeah no look dude I I hope I hope that would indeed be the case. I'm glad that we'll never have to find out. Uh, but uh, yeah, no. So I guess all I'm really trying to say is uh, thank you to everyone who in 1992 voted the right way and gave us the opportunity to sit on a podcast and waffle at each other for an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> this is the... Sorry, I don't have anything more intelligent to say than that. I just, that's, uh, it's just. No, dude, Nicholas, it's beautiful. I mean, it, it is, it is terrible. I've got to say the fact that this is the cherry on top of the 30th anniversary, that this is probably the most that anyone in the whole planet has spent talking about this issue today. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. And that it oh. is a huge day. And that, and that like, Although we kind of do work in this industry of talking about things and thinking about, uh, like we we haven't given you any fun facts. We haven't done any research about this. This is this was not a this was not a sort of seventy people worked on a documentary to screen on the History Channel uh, of SABC Two. Uh, you think that the, the History Channel screens good documentaries? That they don't. <laughs> but anyway, I'm, I mean the South African. You know, look, so we, we've 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 enjoyed. I've definitely. It is a it is a pleasure to 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 riff through the strange strange silence. And I really I really do feel better that I was kicked off a radio station today about a flipping tampon ad or sanitary pad ad that my sister. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it's a pretty mad, it's a pretty mad kind of, oh my word, oh my lordy lord. But, um, Gospody, Pomaginias, I think we're going to be okay. Uh, help us. Help I, us. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> cold word. I'm giving cold language to my, to my evil. Uh... No, no, no. Dude, it's got to be. It's just got to be the case that the 40th anniversary is better than this in the sense yes. that people debate. I just want people to debate. Okay. And on that note, recommendations. My recommendation is that you remember that St. Patrick's Day equals referendum day. So that sometimes when you have a Guinness, you're like, oh, I'm so glad that South Africa is not flipping like a Guinness glass any longer <laughs> yes <laughs> i like that uh 
yeah, so I don't have anything as good as that. I have a lot of things not to recommend. Um, I've gone back onto Twitter because of recent foreign affairs events. And there's a lot of things I'd recommend not looking at there uh, that I've unfortunately spent a lot too much time looking at. So I guess all I can recommend this week is to uh, check out anything written by, if you're interested in uh, kind of American foreign affairs stuff, uh, check out stuff written by Jim Garrity from the National Review, recommended him before. He was really interesting on Afghanistan. Uh, he's also pretty interesting on, on the Ukraine stuff, although he doesn't have the same sort of insight that he got from some of that stuff. Um, but still, so he's always he's, he's always quite a he's a sort of writer who's like um, he's got a quite a jovial attitude, and I quite like it because it, it it's kind of how I want to be in the way I talk about serious things. And uh, yeah, I, I just find a bit of levity is very good right now. Yeah, yeah. And with that, keep the flag of liberty flying.